Today, my guests are two experienced drug diversion and compliance managers. We have Dr. Adam Beeler. He works for the University of Kansas Health System, Rock Chalk Jayhawks, and Mary Nelson, who works for Honor Health in Arizona. The three of us had a really good conversation the other day surrounding drug diversion investigations, and in particular, the interview process. And boy, do I wish I had the camera rolling that day because it was a fabulous, spontaneous conversation. So we are going to do our best to kind of recreate that on that topic, because I think it will be a topic of interest for all of you listening out there. So let's set a little bit of context first. I'm going to start with Adam. Adam, can you start by giving us a high level overview of your investigative process and then when it comes to interviewing, who typically conducts those at your facility? Sure. So our investigations typically start by using an AI-based platform. So a, a particular person flags within the system. My team does an initial review of the individual. And at that point, we make a determination whether we think that there's diversion or not. And so Within that conversation, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. It's it's very collaborative, but from there we collaborate with our nurse managers, or or you know, if the employee is of anesthesia or pharmacy, we collaborate with that employee's supervisor. And so at that stage, we introduce you know why we're we're talking to them, what our concerns are, um, really trying to highlight the information for for them so they don't have to go recreate what we found. Um, and then from there, we make very um, guided suggestions as to what to do for next steps. And so without, within our institution, our next steps uh, typically leads to a fact-finding meeting with the employee who is suspected of diversion. And um, within that process, it's typically the supervisor of the employee and um, a, either an experienced uh, nursing director, experienced pharmacy director, uh, or, or someone from HR as a witness. Um, within the state of Kansas, we're not unionized, so we don't have to worry about a union rep being present, but um, typically we'll have that conversation of what the concerns are, you know, prep the, the individuals for that conversation, uh, and then allow them to guide the conversation with, with their employee and, and that other person as, as a witness and a note taker. Um, and then from there, we typically would Put the individual on admin leave um, and issue a urine drug screen at that time pending the results and so i think that's really important for us as well because within that time we also do more investigation more follow-up if that person reveals more information that we perhaps did not catch initially and so that allows us time to to do that and you know obviously we do our reporting and everything we're supposed to do on that end as well but that's kind of our initial uh, investigation response. And, and those are the folks who are running the, the, the fact-finding meeting. Okay, and when you say additional time, when you do the urine drug screen because you're waiting for the results to come back, then you're Correct. doing yep. whatever else you need. Okay, all right, Mary, same question for you. Walk us through your process. So um, actually very similar to Adam's. Um, I also have a surveillance, uh, drug diversion surveillance analytics system. Um, that cases can be escalated to me through that. But there's also cases, and I'm about 50-50 in the data that I keep. 
on cases coming to me through surveillance versus cases coming to me through someone saying, hey, I have a concern. Can you look into this? Whether that be a, you know, a nursing leader um, or a report from a patient. We've had a few investigations start from a patient reporting concerns um, or other staff members. So again, about 50-50 on how um, those cases first come to me for investigation. So then it's, you know, the typical investigation, just really digging through chart audits, you know, looking at, um, you know, delayed in administrations, um, anything that's not reconciled, whether that be a full dose um, versus un undocumented waste. So just kind of going through all of those things that we usually identify um, as patterns in the data. So looking very deeply at that. Um, early uh, collaboration with a, a department director, whether that be um, a nurse or an anesthesiologist. Um, a, they understand their department workflow and culture. Um, but they also know any other behavior. So that's one thing I'm always interested to know before I escalate to a diversion response team are, are there behaviors that you're concerned about that I wouldn't know about just by looking at the data? You know, absenteeism, showing up late, uh, unable to find someone uh, during a shift. You don't know where they are. They don't really have a good excuse to where they are. Are other staff members complaining about this? Because oftentimes it might not be the nurse leader that knows about this, but their but co coworkers or colleagues know. Like, dang, every time I look for so and so, I can't find them during a shift. Um, so again, those are things that you really have to coax out those behaviors because they're obviously not clear in data. Um, so once you kind of have enough pieces of a puzzle to escalate a concern of diversion, we do have campus-based diversion response teams. Um, so those are leaders, uh, executive leaders, uh, nursing leaders of the particular person we're looking into. Pharmacy security, I think, is important to have security on that team um, as your liaison to law enforcement if necessary. And also, they just have great investigation skills, um, you know, outside of controlled substances and medications and clinical type of investigation. Um, so very important to have them. And, and obviously, HR, you know, in my organization, um, if drug diversion wasn't pharmacy's job in the past, it was HR's job in the past. So it's important to kind of bring everyone together from their perspectives and really make um, drug diversion everyone's responsibility, right? So um, the decision on next steps is made with that team um, at each campus. Um, and typically when we get to that level, like we need to have a discussion, most often it moves to um, investigation, uh, interviewing, uh, urine drug screening, that paid administrative leave as we do more investigation. Um, so that's typically the path that we go. Every once in a while, we'll say, you know, let's monitor and kind of keep an eye, see what else is going on. But most of the time, um, we move and escalate to a full investigation from there. Okay. All right. So a lot of similarities. And I think, Adam, when we had spoken last time, you have a diversion response team of some sort that is, you had mentioned collaboration and the decision. Is that what you were referring to? You have a set team that kind of reviews? Yeah, so we have, um, it's really two different teams. One, the diversion response team is really dedicated for, um, you know, thinking of, thinking of like a, a PSRT or patient safety response team, right? So mm -hmm. if there's a, an employee who's found down with 
um, perhaps a needle, they're unconscious, we're suspecting diversion within that, that's when our diversion response team is activated. We're really trying to clear the scene and make sure everyone's safe. Um, but in terms of our day-to-day -day investigations, my team um, leads the investigations. And then from there, we just collaborate with the, the nurse manager or supervisor at that point. So okay. it doesn't go for a, a second review. Um, okay. And again, you know, this is one approach, one philosophy. It doesn't mean it's the right way necessarily. And it, it may not fit for everyone, but um, early on, we've got a lot of buy-in from our nurse managers, our nursing leadership to, to have that approach and it's worked well for us. And so, you know, with that being said, I am not a part of the, the, um, the, the fact-finding meeting with the employee and, and we can get into that, Terry, if you want, but um, mm -hmm. want to share my thoughts on that first and allow perhaps Mary or, or you to ask follow-up questions from that. Yeah, we'll definitely get into that because um, I think that's, you know, it's interesting and it gives us all something different to think about, too. And, and you bring up a good point. You know, this is the way we do it. It doesn't mean it's the best. There's more than one right answer, I think. I don't think there's a single right answer out there. And within a given circumstance, there could be a different answer, right? Maybe this is the way we normally do it, but we need to be ready, ready to kind of pivot and switch if we think it will work better a different way will work better in a, in a situation. And being a consultant, I don't represent a specific entity, but I can tell you that experiences from the past with a system that has a more developed program, it's a lot like what the two of you have in terms of how you go about things and, you know, a, a group kind of determining whether it's going to go or, or speaking first to a manager and see if there's another explanation, something that they don't know, getting those, like you said, Mary, what else is happening? Um, and I'll be interested to hear if we have time. I think a lot of times the first question of, are you noticing anything? The answer is no. And then when you start to probe and you ask a little bit more specific questions, then you're like, uh, that's kind of important, you know, and they don't recognize it as being important in terms of behavioral or performance issues. Um, but then that collaboration and deciding whether to go, <clears throat> excuse me, go forward and have that interview, it sounds like it's very similar in, in many institutions. I have worked with smaller places that don't have a developed program, and it really comes down to well, one place that I did work at where I was in staffing before um, becoming a consultant, it was kind of my decision, which I didn't like that. It was all up to me, <laughs> which, um, you know, that that's a lot of uh, responsibility. And then sometimes when I felt very strongly, you know, I had to then be the one to totally escalate up because, you know, I can't let this one go. This one is really, really important. But um, in general, I think we all have about the same process. And yeah, Adam, as you alluded to, you're not in the, you call it a fact finding, it sounds like, instead of an interview, which is a different terminology. But you had also mentioned in passing, which caught my attention, that you do not feel that the person conducting the audit, performing the audit, should be involved in the interview, which is different than the way I felt. And I know many others, and we were all pushing like, you got to have the diversion specialist in the room. They know the story. So talk to us about that. Why? Sure. What are your thoughts? Yeah. So, you know, again, this is one philosophy. It doesn't mean it's right. There's diversion is so nebulous that there could be a thousand different solutions and everyone come to the same you know, conclusion. Right. So 
this is what works best for us. And, you know, the, the reason that I, I feel strongly about not being a part of those conversations is because we're doing the investigation in, in my role within that investigation is to collect the data and be really objective with what I'm seeing and sharing that information for the nurse manager um, and, and nursing director, or whomever it might be um, from a supervisor position to then determine, okay, something serious is going on here, right? And so we help collect the information, we help tell the story for them, but the data is only part of the story. And so I don't know that individual, I, I don't know their background, I don't know their personal life. There's so much more context within that individual that I'm not aware of. On the day-to-day -day, as I'm reviewing this individual, you know, in my role, I, I wanna catch diversion, right? I, I want to um, prevent it from occurring in the future. And so unconsciously, I, I think we all develop sort of a bias to say, yes, that person's diverting, right? And we can, Come up with all these different uh, data points to to prove that but at the end of the day you know are they diverting I, I don't know and so that's why it's i think it's important to have someone else in that room having that conversation with that person because i feel like i am predetermined to 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 what i want the outcome to be and that's not fair to that individual now you could say in the other side of this argument is well perhaps their supervisor is uh, bias in the opposite direction where they don't want to believe that person's diverting, which can be true. And I, I've seen that happen uh, time and time again. But I think that's where it's really important that um, it's the right person in the room, um, whether it's the diversion specialist or whether it's the nurse manager or the nurse director or pharmacy director, whomever it is. One, they don't have any skin in the game. They're unbiased. Uh, and two, they're experienced in those conversations. They know the right questions to ask. They know how to frame questions. They're not afraid of those difficult conversations, which, you know, those can be really hard conversations to have. And so, um, again, I, I steer away from being a part of those conversations to remove any bias on my end. Um, but I also think it's important that the individuals in the room, um, that that person knows that knows the uh, employee on some level, um, and then there's some witness there to also help guide the conversation um, because you know the last thing we want is that um, that employee to say oh well that person has it out for me and, and and they're lying about what I said in that room et cetera et cetera well that other person in the room is there to cor corroborate the story help guide the conversation keep them on track and you know I, I could go into many more details why I think it's uh, important to have those individuals in the room but I think lastly we want to make sure that employee feels comfortable in that position. And if I'm the drug diversion guy in the room, you know, their, their, their perception of what's going on is going to, going to shift pretty drastically. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I really want the employee to feel comfortable um, in that situation to either confess if they are diverting or, you know, say, Hey, I, I have a problem. I need help. Um, and I think that environment really allows them to do that more. And so, again, there's there's several more reasons which we I'm, I'd be happy to get into, but those are kind of the, the few that jump out to me. Okay, that makes sense. Mary, what are your thoughts? Because I think you are involved in the interviews, right? So yes, um, just to go back a little bit, if you know, if the concern is more of non-compliance um, or we don't have those behavioral concerns. Um, to, to kind of 
build that puzzle or paint that picture of diversion, um, that's when I do kind of let the clinical director, the nursing director, take lead on that interview. You know, what what else is going on? Sometimes it becomes, you know, something more recently I've been seeing is, oh, it's a new nurse. We've been seeing a lot of the new grad less than a year um, with some compliance issues or time management issues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which again, those are things we don't know when we're looking at the data. So I think if it's more of a non-compliance concern, um, that's really when the clinical director leads that conversation, um, you know, and then we go into a monitoring mode. So we would monitor from there. But if we have the diversion response team meeting, there is a high enough level of concern for diversion. That is when I will get involved and lead the interview. Um, I think for several reasons, this is the path that Honor Health has taken. Um, the data can sometimes be really hard to convey and to understand clearly. Like we do this every single day. We get into the weeds. We're very tedious with this, you know, sifting through all of this data. So we get it. We understand it. But you have a clinical director that has, you know, a hundred other competing priorities in any given day for them to really sit down and understand that data is complex. It's difficult for them. Um, so I think that, you know, being able to have that that information at the interview to really to really challenge the person that we're interviewing for really good answers, you know, to have that rigorous interview, um, you know, I feel like the person that is mostly most intimate with that data should be at the table, maybe not leading it. You know, maybe that is a, a consideration that the the clinical director takes more over the the lead of that um, with with the drug diversion specialist having the data in the knowledge of that. So um, there are a lot of different ways to, to uh, approach it. I, I do think so. Yeah. I agree with that. De- definitely. Yeah. And, yeah. Go ahead, Adam. Uh, I was just going to say, you know, you, you mentioned the word fact finding, and I, I think it's really important here to, to call that out because in my opinion, the interviewer fact finding is an opportunity for the employee to to state their claim of what went down, right? And so there might be a reason as to why the data is presenting itself a particular way. I think COVID has taught us that workflows change, you know, very fast because of certain circumstances, right? And so the data can be misleading and not tell the right story. And so you know the reason we call it a fact finding is because really we want that person to be able to speak to the activity they're doing for us to then make a determination how we want to go forward and so through that conversation and i'm sure mary has the same approach here you know we try to stick to the facts and, and not um you know accuse that individual of diverting or doing something nefarious you know we really are trying to understand the situation right help me understand why you're doing it this way and so from that you can learn a lot and and then you know you can parse out is this diversion is this, you know, a practice concern in this area? Are they a new employee, et cetera, et cetera? But I think, I think we, you know, it wouldn't be fair if we did not give that employee an opportunity to to speak to our findings. And so that's why we approach it that way. Right. Okay. I've got a couple of questions. I do want to go backwards just a little bit. I think it is important, especially for those that are kind of new in this space. I think when we've been at it for a while, we have 
seen more, obviously. And we start to, you know, we look at the data and we're like, meh, I think we got a live one here. But for those of us that have been in it for a while, I think we also have learned our lesson where we've maybe thought that in the past and then we have discovered some other bit of information. So I don't know about the two of you, but you know, I have gotten to the point where, yeah, I think we have a live one, but I'm always open to hearing something else because I have been there, done that, and I have gotten other information in the past that I never would have anticipated. And it's like, okay, I think this is a practice issue, workflow issue, what have you. So I, I want to point that out. And, you know, what you say, Adam, about being biased in the opposite direction. Again, I think with experience, we get to the point where we can be less bias, even if we think there is something, we hold the door open for another explanation because we've learned. But we do need to be careful when it comes to interpreting the data. And um, because you're right, with most data, you can take it to mean what you want it to mean, right? And so um, I am familiar with some of the software products too. And depending on how I use that, if I don't take you know, work days into consideration or number of patients for an anesthesiologist, let's say, compared to peers or even different cases, you know, the very basic of, of what you're comparing. There's a lot of different things. And if you don't have the experience and know how to take all of that into consideration or you just want to jump to your conclusion, then it can paint an extremely different picture, which which means something very, very different. Um, so that, um, I forgot what I was gonna say when I wanted to, <laughs> I wanna go back, back. Oh, I think I wanted to ask, so Adam, in your interview, your fact finding, I, we're all on the same page with that, that's, that's where we all start. Do you then, once you go through the beginning of that and you can't find another explanation, does it then progress to a different kind of, of tone in terms of like letting them know, you know, something's not adding up here or how does that work? Sure. So, you know, typically before any fact finding happens now, let me back up. There are certain situations where it's all hands on deck. We need to, you know, talk to this person ASAP, right? Those are um, a different situation. It, you know, we could get into that later, maybe a different conversation. But those those folks aside, you know, typically I have time to at least speak with the the supervisor and the person who's going to do the fact finding. Um, I, I really want to share with them what I'm seeing in the data, and you know, explain to them why these particular things are not um, part of our normal practice and why they're concerning. So giving them the backbone to stand on and helping them frame the questions to ask the individual through that. Um, our particular software solution that we use for drug diversion allows us to print out a case report of all the information, which we find incredibly helpful during our uh, fact-finding meetings because all the information is there um, in, in front of the, the supervisor. It can be shared with the employee um, to help explain, hey, what's what happened here on this date? Why is it showing like this, right? And so um, to answer your question, I know I'm getting long-winded here, but all of that's really important on the front end to, to make sure the people in the room uh, feel comfortable having the, the conversation and, and feel like they have all the tools they need in that conversation. 
Um, and from there, they're really guiding where it needs to go. Um, I would say most of the time, if not all the time, we end up doing that um, urine drive screen in administrative leave because it then gives us that time to get back together as a team, determine what next steps are, um, whether it is just poor practice, great. Now we can develop, okay, a, a plan for that individual going forward. How do we want to monitor him? What else do we need to be looking at? What are we missing in our diversion reviews? Mm -hmm. What workflow changes do we need to consider uh, because of the situation? So there's a lot within that that we can focus on while that person's out. Um, it, it, again, if it's not diversion, that person might be out a day or two, maybe, maybe three, four days max, right? But if it is diversion, um, then we're removing them from the situation and um, li eliminating future patient harm from occurring. So I don't think there's anything wrong with to, to escalate to that point. And we've almost gotten to a place where it's kind of just the common next step of the process. Now, obviously, there's the exception there uh, that you pointed out. If the individual um, you know, has reasonable explanations for everything that's going on, We'll also talk through those scenarios beforehand to say, okay, if Jane Doe comes in here and she has reasonable explanations for X, Y, and Z, her story adds up, maybe we do just send her home for the day and then talk as a team and, and determine next steps from there, right? So there's a lot of different ways we can approach it, um, but typically it is putting that person on admin leave in the urine drug screen to allow us that opportunity to, to dig deeper. Um, and again, it's 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 going to change person to person um, depending on the person's response uh, the employee's response how they react are they are they emotional about the situation are, are they crying for help um, because they have the you know substance abuse disorder you know so many things can happen within that room um, and, and that's where I also feel like maybe I'm not the best to to address those issues that that person might have and Whereas the nurse manager or the supervisor can address those needs almost immediately, right? And so a lot goes on within the conversation. And I wish I could tell you, you know, if this happens, steer left. If this happens, steer right. <laughs> yeah. It's just never going to be that way, right? right like, right, you just right. never know how a person's going to react. And so it's really hard to answer the question, but you kind of just have to have that emotional intelligence to, to understand and predict what the outcomes could be and how that person's going to respond. And and, and kind of just adjust from there. Right, yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, Mary, you had mentioned about being the most familiar with the data, and I am totally with you on that. You know, Adam says that they can do the printout, and I know that I've, you know, prepared the full audit, and, and all, the, all the information is on there, but when you're digging deep and you're actually looking, there's some stuff that you're not necessarily putting on paper, but it's in the back of your mind and it kind of all ties together. So I, I understand what you're saying in terms of the auditor is the most familiar and it's hard to bring everybody up to speed. I don't know if you have any more comments on that or anything else that Adam um, has discussed. Yeah, maybe just a couple of other things that I think are important for us to think about when we're looking at investigations. One of them is um, you know, looking at the full picture. So including any of those actions with non-controlled substances that are going on. Mm -hmm. So that just adds, what does that add in like 75% more data if we're looking at all the non-controlled dispenses, <laughs> right? Um, but sometimes it's important, you know, we, we all know those Very. diphenhydramine, um, 
promethazine, if you still have that in your Pixis and your formulary, you know, other things that you, that you'll see and be able to parse out. So, you know, I think well, that and that's it's, important. It's not only the drugs, those drugs, but it's also like if you're seeing delayed administrations or back charting, or are you seeing it with the non-controls as well? Is that their practice mm -hmm. or do they do everything the way they're supposed to and follow policy with those, but they don't with the control. So there's that piece too. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Like there's, they don't document controlled substance um, in the MAR, but then all of their non-controls are documented perfectly. Well, wow. Right. Even maybe something that was dispensed at the same at time. At the same time. <laughs> so yeah, you know, that, that, that really requires that level of review. Um, the other thing I like to do is review, um, security camera footage if you have it over yeah. your business machines because it's just interesting to me to see what someone's behavior is like are they relaxed in the bedroom are they you know pulling out their vial of morphine and setting it on top of the pixis you know you'll you'll see people do that they they do their count and they just set it right here almost like you're you know looking at a, a blackjack table in vegas or something you know their hands are open um, they they're they have everything on display that they're doing. There's no secrets. They're not looking over their shoulder. Just their general behavior really gives you some information about investigation. Look at you know a normal uh, appearing um, waste process. You know it wasn't a late waste. Um, it wasn't a batch waste. It wasn't any of those things that we pick out as a pattern. Um, but we can look at that just a normal everyday waste and see, you know, what what does the other person do? Is it what we would anticipate being a compliant waste process with, you know, visualization, dispensing, you know, disposing of the medication into the appropriate waste bin at the time that it's documented? Those kind of things, again, will just give you more information, um, you know, to fuel that investigation, I think. So... Um, just a couple of tips there that I think, you know, are important in that investigation part. Yeah, that's all good. And I think one of the conclusions that we came to when we had this conversation previously, and, and we've said it, there's not necessarily one right way, but I think what we all agreed on, and I think what everybody would agree with, is that whoever is conducting the interview and leading the interview needs to be familiar with the case and um, needs to have some interview training and some sort of skill set, right? If you take any of those elements out, you're going to miss tremendous opportunity, either because you don't know what the right answer should be and what it looks like from a clinical perspective. I know I've been you know, at places where HR conducts the interview. And while they may have experience conducting interviews, they don't have the clinical knowledge unless they've maybe been there a while and have picked up, you know, what is appropriate and what isn't. But so many times I would have HR come back to me and then ask me a question. You know, they said this. Does that make sense? It's like, nope, doesn't make any sense at all. But we've now lost our window of opportunity to redirect because the interview is over. Right. And you're in that. OK, we'll we'll get back to you phase. So there's that. Um or if somebody is, is the diversion specialist and they have all of the information, but they don't know how to conduct an interview. 
because I was just talking to somebody today that was saying, oh, I don't know if I'm comfortable with this. You know, he's a director of pharmacy and that's not our natural skill set. Um, and so, yeah, I get it. I can see how you wouldn't be comfortable with that. So it's asking those hard questions and really knowing how to listen. So I think a lot of it is that's what it comes down to. And if you have found a way to make it work in your institution that takes all of those things into consideration and you're doing um, what would be considered thorough fact finding or interviews and your processes with the right people in the room for your organization, then I think that's what's going to give you the best chance of success, really. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, you know, I, I think you said this interviewing is a skill and skills take time and practice, right? And so um, it's really important that the person going in there, one, has a game plan for the interview, but two, that you practice these scenarios, you know, anticipate what the what the person's gonna say on the other side of the table, and then, you know, go through simulations and, and then do it again with a different outcome or, um, you know, a different scenario. And, and continue to do that and get comfortable with asking those tough questions um, and, you know, I think with anything, you know, it, it really depends on the right person, you know, sure. I could conduct the interviews. I feel comfortable in those situations. And it, it's, for me, it's not a matter of conducting it, but, uh, you know, other people don't feel that way. Right. And pharmacists in general, um, especially if we're in this world and looking at data all the time, maybe we're more comfortable looking at our computer screens than you know, talking to someone, um, and having a difficult conversation, right? And so right. that's okay. But making sure that whoever is doing the interview is 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 prepped for the interview, has practice, can anticipate what's going to happen, uh, and stay unbiased throughout that process, I think that's your best chance for success. Yep. Anticipate, but be able to pivot. Exactly. <laughs> she get thrown a loop. <laughs> yeah, all of that makes sense. Mary, anything else? Any final thoughts that you have or want to share? You know, I think um, in, in a final thought would just be something that we are um, beginning to work at in my organization is our response to drug diversion and those with substance use disorder. I think if you have a system that has a compassionate response and it's not immediate termination and your staff knows this, then your interview is going to go down whichever path you've already chosen. You know, I think that if it's immediate termination, staff is going to deny because it's of self-preservation. Um, you know, if they know that if they admit it, they're going to lose their job, lose their insurance. Um, you know, they and they know if they don't admit it, that they have the potential to stay in the job um, or uh, we might not report to the board. However, we norm we normally do report to the board, even in denials. Um, uh, you know, you've kind of chosen your own path by by what the policy is of the organization. So I think yeah. it's important that organizations um, you know, look at those policies and um, consider just culture um, when you're looking at response to drug diversion. That's true. Yeah, because if I know that the outcome is going to be really bad if I confess, I might as well hold on and keep seeing if I can convince you otherwise and then quit on my own time. 
right? Mm -hmm. um, make my own decision. So you have a good point. Um, this is off topic, but before we go, I do want to ask, since I have you both here, you both do urine drug screens. Do you have a feel for how often it comes back negative when you kind of thought you had something going on? And so that does that negative, um, negative result then mess up anything or does it prevent you from term or what do you do with it when you're, you know, thinking you should have gotten a positive? Adam, do you want to go first? Sure. Yeah. I'd be happy to answer. Um, like anything, just like data, just like the conversation with the, with the individual, with the employee, it's one piece of information. And so you have to understand that you're a drug screen, depending on when you're taking it, depending on what that person's diverting, depending on what home medications they have, it may show us negative. They could be selling it or they could be distributing it to, to family members. There's a lot of reasons to divert medications. Now, the most obvious one is for, you know, substance use disorders, but that's not always the case. And, you know, I, I'd be happy to share examples offline of when that was not the case. Um, but, you know, just understanding that's one piece of the puzzle. And there's a lot of explanations why that could be negative. Um, case in point, you can have a prescription for a medication. That person could also be diverting that same medication within the, within the health system. And so understanding that, and I think expressing that with um, the, the hiring manager, the director, HR, and everyone, making sure everyone understands that, hey, drug screen is not end all be all. If it comes back positive, I think then that information is helpful in circumstances to then dig a little deeper because maybe it tests positive for a drug that you weren't concerned about it initially, right? And now all of a sudden it's positive for um, a metabolite of fentanyl and now you're scrambling and say, oh, wow, I need to really look into fentanyl now because that was not on my radar initially, but now, now it should be. So, you know, I think understanding that and putting it into context, it's, it's just not the end all be all. Um, you know, you're not going to solve every case with the urine drug screen, but it allows you that extra time to then investigate further and come to a conclusion. Right. Yeah. Mary. So I totally agree with what Adam said. Um, it, but sometimes it is very difficult for others involved um, to not let the urine drug screen be the end all, you know, oh, it's negative. They're not diverting. Um, so the conversation always has to be had, like we need to consider, you know, what will our response be if the drug, urine drug screen is negative? I have some examples. I've had two confessions where nurses said, yes, I was diverting. And both of them um, had a negative urine drug screen. So, um, you know, it, it does happen. Um, were they another, were they diverting for self use? So it yeah, should have yes. you would have expected a positive. Yes. Could the negative have been because they had prescriptions for? Um, not to my knowledge, no. Okay. I, not to my knowledge in either case that they had prescriptions. Okay, okay. So, and just to um, clarify for people that maybe aren't as aware, because I know I wasn't for quite some time. Many facilities will deem it a negative test mm -hmm. if the employee tests positive for something they have a prescription for. And right. so all we will know is that it was negative when indeed right. there was something in the urine. Correct. Okay. Sorry, Mary, to interrupt you. Carry on. Yep. 
So yes, in neither of the cases, um, interesting. Did the nurse say that they had a prescription? So, um, and then we did have a case again, similar to what Adam mentioned, where I was looking specifically um, at um, OxyIR as uh, the drug of choice. Um, you know, very high utilization rate of OxyIR with this nurse, and that was really what I had pegged as the drug of choice. The urine drug screen came back positive for fentanyl. Um, so we did just that. We go back, I look at every single fentanyl dispense because there were very few in this area. Um, so I didn't have a lot of uh, uh, data to look at. So I looked at every single one of them and did not see a problem with any of them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it's something that we need to consider in drug diversion is looking at the availability of illicit fentanyl specifically. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't have confirmation that that was the case here, um, but it, it certainly was the first thing that popped into my mind. You know, illicit fentanyl is um, cheap. It's not expensive at all. It's readily available, um, especially here in Arizona. Um, so I think it's something that we need to consider. And again, that's a really important reason to do a urine drug screen is to pick those things up. Yeah. Interesting. So later I'd like to hear more about was she diverting oxy or was she not? And <laughs> she had another problem because mm -hmm. that's interesting. Yeah. The twists and turns that things yeah. take, right? Every case All right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I want to thank you both. I'm, I'm sure we could keep going. We've already gone much longer than I usually like to go, but um, I'm sure we could go for another couple of hours at least with this conversation. So I thank you both for your time. I know you're really busy, but hopefully this was uh, eye-opening and meaningful for those listening. And they can just see that we don't all do it the same way. We usually have a good reason for doing it a different way. And uh, it makes you think when you start having the conversations that hmm, maybe there is a different way that also works, right? There's many ways to do it. Yeah. Thank you, Terry. Right. Thank you, guys. Thanks.